Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Barrett Klein. He's a professor at University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. And he studies uh, animal behavior, entomology, social insect biology, and how insects interact, I guess, with humans. And he has what's called the pupating lab, where he studies some of this stuff. So, Barrett, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, Richard. Really excited to be here. Yeah, what got you into studying uh, animal behavior, in particular insect behavior? A lot of people run away from insects and just want to step on them, but you seem curious about them. That is an easy question to answer because I can rewind to when I was five years old and had this overwhelming fascination with insects. And I knew, and I can still feel that moment, this wave, this, this excitement of insects and, and wondering how they might affect my life. And I, I knew they'd be at the core of my existence. And I just wondered how they would play a role. And over the years, I became really excited about these miniature wonders that are so diverse, so beautiful, and a key, so accessible. Right in your backyard, it can be in a parking lot, and you can watch the most amazing behaviors and forms and shapes and colors. Yeah, my my wife and I recently went to this uh, park like an hour west of where we live in Texas, and she has a macro lens on her camera now, and she she just took pictures of all this sub-millimeter stuff, flowers and bugs and lichen and all kinds of things and there's a whole world of stuff that's so small we just pass over it so i'm sure bugs are a big part of that yeah we talk about putting a new lens on life and and taking that literally can be thrilling can be life-changing so for example when i was an undergraduate studying entomology uh we were to choose one insect that we really would focus on And I chose a locust borer beetle. It's yellow and black striped, long antennae. And it sounds and looks oddly like a bee flying from flower to flower. And only after I placed it under a microscope did I notice that the yellow was just a bunch of basically modified hairs that could be rubbed away. You get a whole new picture of not just structures, but how those structures can affect behaviors. So whether it be a telescope looking at another planet or a magnifying glass or a macro lens, as you said with your wife, or a microscope, these open up new worlds and new understandings for phenomena all around us. Yeah, no, definitely. So what what insects uh, have you studied in detail and what, what surprising things have you learned? You already just mentioned this, but, you know, what are some other surprising things? So I love all insects and I'm excited to explore the different groups and especially behaviors relating to 
learning and sleep biology, uh, social insects are especially compelling to me. So some of the animals I've looked at collaboratively have included frogs and bats in uh, Panama and Israel and other places, but, but I'm perpetually drawn to insects and I find social insects particularly compelling, I guess, because we're a social species and, and to look at another very different lineage of organism behave in this interdependent manner can be enlightening. And so I've, I've done most of my research with honeybees, paper wasps, and a few other species. And students in my lab are looking beyond insects at other arthropods, the, large, uh, the largest phylum of animals that includes basically everything with segmented jointed legs, like scorpions, spiders, all the arachnids, as well as the myriapods, the centipedes and millipedes. And of course, crustaceans, within which insects are the most diverse lineage. Have you ever seen a vinegaroon? I remember oh, that they, they, they love them. Shoot, shoot out vinegar. They're very weird and strange. Yes, I had one in my lab. They're marvelous. So yes, they shoot out this acetic acid out of the base of their back end. And it can temporarily distract or blind a potential predator as they scurry away. This is one of the... 11, arguably 12 orders of arachnids. And they're typically desert dwellers. At least that's where I'm, I'm used to bumping into them. So what, um, I don't know, what, what have you learned from studying these insects? It sounds like you're just like a, let's look and see what we find and what we learn type of person, which I really like. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what kind of insights have you gotten from studying some of these creatures? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good observation. There are two in the extreme, there are two ways a scientist can look at natural phenomena, I think, if they're studying organisms. And one way is to say, I like that organism, or this is a model organism. I'm going to stick with that and learn whatever I can. Another way is to have an idea, like I'm interested in, and I mentioned sleep already, and I'll talk more about sleep in a moment. Um, I'm going to find the right organism or maybe a mix of organisms to study this idea, this concept. And I am a mix of the two. So I know that I love, well, I love all living organisms, but particularly insects, I find them intriguing. And so by looking at a variety of species of insects and also falling in love with the peculiar nature of sleep and dreaming, I mean, what is sleep? Why do we do it? Who else does it? What are specifically social aspects of sleep? These are questions that can arise. And if I can find organisms to understand not just what sleep is from a human perspective, but a larger context, broader questions. Where does it come from evolutionarily? How does it function ecologically? You can ask the hows and the whys, and insects offer opportunities to do so. So some of the approaches I've taken is to stand on the shoulders of a couple of giants who introduce the idea that sleep might exist in insects, and then look at functional aspects or in some ways mechanistic aspects related to sleep. So people for the longest time, didn't know, didn't even think about insects sleeping. And whenever I mentioned that this is research I conduct, people's eyes widen, they say, insects sleep? I mean, you'll even get questions like, are insects animals? Do insects have brains? And yes, insects are animals, the most diverse lineage of animals. And yes, they do have brains, compartmentalized, fascinating brains capable of quite a lot, depending on the species you're looking at. And what I what I wanted to do, well, let's rewind uh, to say a couple thousand years. Pliny the Elder first suggested that insects do breathe and sleep. And it took a long time before people did anything about that. And some ecologists, early 1900s, would make observational studies of insects that looked relatively immobile in nature and pondered whether or not they slept. Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. And it took a longer time before, let's say, till 1983, when two giants in the field of sleep research, non-human sleep research, independently assessed sleep in uh, invertebrates. And one was Irene Tobler and another in Zurich, Switzerland, and another was Walter Kaiser in Darmstadt, Germany. And Walter Kaiser looked at a worker honeybee and he very meticulously took a single foraging honeybee and would run studies, tests on it to see whether or not it had a sleep-like behavior. And I say sleep-like behavior because for years after 1983, the the sleep field and biology in general was very careful about applying the word sleep to non-mammals and non-birds, where it had, where it's pretty ubiquitously studied. And words like quiescence and profound rest and rest and sleep-like state were used for a long time. And only in 2000, when a different pair of independently active research labs looked at fruit flies, Drosophila melanogaster, a model system, especially for biomedical pursuits, attempted to test sleep in these very tiny flies. And Paul Shaw, Joan Hendricks, these two uh, principal investigators led these studies. And that has led to this large pursuit across labs, a dispersed pursuit to look at molecular underpinnings to sleep, look at uh, sleep disorders, And my interest has largely been to examine how sleep plays out, what it looks like, how it might affect the lives of individuals, and especially individuals within societies. So one study I conducted was to look at caste-dependent sleep behavior in honeybees. So honeybees are funny, they're unusual, in that the queen lays an egg in a cell in a honeycomb, Egg hatches, grows into a larva that feeds and molts and feeds and molts and feeds and molts, and then pupates inside that cell, hence the pupating lab name of my research lab. So a fully metamorphosing insect goes through this, at least superficially, still state, but there's a lot of change going on, including development of wings. Well, they close as adults, and when you have an adult honeybee pulling out of her pupil exoskeleton and and spreading her wings. She clumsily wanders about with some matted hair-like uh, structures. And she, for the first two days as an adult, she's typically going to be a cleaner, cleaning cells. And then the next week, she'll be a nurse bee, tending brood or the queen. And the following week or so, she might be a food storer, collecting food from incoming foragers. And then the terminal cast, the end of her life, is typically a risky foraging stage where she'll venture off and collect food. Well, a lot happens in a bustling colony of tens of thousands of honeybees. And I I wanted to test some ideas as to who sleeps, when, where, is is a nest full of honeybees always active? Or are there sleep times, like at night? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And are there specific places in a nest or in a human-made hive where bees would sleep? And then I wanted to ask questions as to why they might sleep or functionally-minded questions 
as to what sleep or the lack of sleep can do to a honeybee. And that took me in some really interesting directions. So in science, if you find out some answer, or at least you address some question, it opens up the field to so many new questions. And that's how I like to lead my lab, have some idea of the directions I want to go, but keep one eye open to possible nuggets of gold in terms of future directions that could teach us more about natural phenomena happening all around us. Well, if you looked at various insects, how much of their behavior is uh, repeated, you know, over, you know, across different species and how much of it is is unique? Wow, that's a, that's a fascinating question because we've got some have estimated 10 quintillion insects out there and well over 1 million described species of insects. So that's, at least half the number of described species of organisms on the planet. So the diversity is extreme. And within insects, you have orders, and those orders can can have quite a bit of overlap or be quite different depending on what questions you're addressing or what you're looking for. So for example, if you want to look at how insects fly or how they behave socially, you come up with questions related to homology, like do they share a common behavior because of common ancestry? Like these bees fly and are social, and so are these bees, but that's because their ancestor shared those behaviors, right? And they and descent with modification, they just have it. Uh, that's one way to approach it, to consider homology. Another is maybe it's due to convergence. Maybe a chimpanzee behaves a way very similar to the way Homo sapiens behaves, but maybe it's not due to common ancestry. Maybe we've converged on a behavior. So with insects, if we're looking at, um, and it's case by case, if you're looking at sleep biology, almost nothing is known. That's exciting, but it's also frustrating. I find it exciting because there's so much to learn, endless money, time, and resources, and human power, we'd still just be scratching the surface, but learning so much along the way. What have you noticed about uh, the sleeping behavior of various insects? I mean, do they even sleep, and where do they go, and how do they sleep? So in the case of Cavity nesting honeybees. So honeybees will nest inside a tree, for example, at least the species we have that were introduced to the Western Hemisphere 500 years ago. And if you peek inside with special instruments or make a special hive with glass uh, walls, then you can individually mark or label your bees. And then you've got this remarkable soap opera where you can watch and and keep tabs, blue, red, or yellow, green, the bees that you've been watching for a while to see what kind of consistency exists. So what I wanted to do initially with the study is to see just who's sleeping and and when. And I found that across those four general categories of caste-dependent workers that I mentioned before, that they change with respect to where they're sleeping. So the youngest bees, the youngest adult bees, as they age and change tasks, will start by sleeping inside cells in the brood comb, right by the young that they would be caring for. This is a bustling area of the hive. So maybe there are functional aspects to that. Maybe they're getting away from being bumped by their sisters, diving into cells for some peace and quiet. But as they age and change their tasks, They end up sleeping more to the edge, the periphery of the comb, away from others and outside of cells. And as far as rhythmicity, we're nocturnally sleeper, sleeping and diurnally active generally as humans. And honeybees, at least the foragers, the workers that depend on light to forage are the same. But when you look at the younger workers, They're cathemeral, like cats. That means they might get a cat nap here and there. They'll sleep uh, for shorter bouts around the clock. So you've got this change as you age, which is really related to their tasks. The tasks define what they do. And as a result, 
how they sleep or when they sleep. So there's the when and there's the where, are you a rhythmic sleeper? And where spatially do you sleep? And then I wanted to address questions of why sleep? And one thing that I noticed in the sleep literature is that sleep is defined by a suite of behavioral characters and in humans and our close relatives and, and birds as well, electrophysiologically. You can look at brain activity and say, yep, that one's in a brain that, that's exhibiting a brain state that suggests sleep. And not only that, stage three sleep, uh, maybe a deeper stage of sleep or rapid eye movement sleep where they are, they're potentially having narrative dreams, right? Well, that's more difficult to do with insects and sleep is first and foremost a behavior. So we look at the suite of behavioral sleep signs. But sleep isn't defined by function. So for example, if I were to ask you, what is the definition of courtship? Well, the idea is that it ultimately, potentially, and ideally from the perspective of the, of the quarter should result in a mating and potential production of progeny. So fitness increasing because you, you create more of genetically close relatives, right? Out there in the world. Well, with sleep, we really don't know what the function or functions of sleep is are, but we have ideas. And there are a lot of hypotheses out there. Many of them are non-mutually exclusive. So you might have one function that works just as well as another function in terms of importance for an individual, depending on that individual's life habits. So one big idea is that sleep really confers benefits with respect to learning and memory consolidation, forming memories and retaining those memories, and then revisiting those memories and learning from them. Uh, but there are do other you, uh, ideas. Yeah. Do, do bugs, like when you observe them sleeping, are they just laying there? Are they fidgeting? Are they like sharks where they have to keep moving, but they're sleeping somehow? Oh, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought up sharks. I was recently on a, a PhD committee for an Australian shark researcher studying sleep. And there are two major lineages of shark, one that has to keep in motion and one that doesn't. And their sleep may be different with respect to that. So in the case of, in the case of insects, what you typically see, and this is really adopting behavioral sleep signs, diagnostic features of sleep from the vertebrate literature, looking at mammals and birds. What do we see? We sleep, see relative immobility. We see not only this lack of motion, but a postural state suggesting lowered muscle tone. So they might droop in the direction of gravity. You'll see a lot of other things like body temperature dropping, et cetera. But the key is an increased what's called a response threshold. It just takes more for them to respond to a stimulus. So for example, Richard, if I were to poke you and you're falling asleep as I'm talking, it might take a little bit more effort to get you to respond if you're truly asleep. And that's different than a coma and other conditions of immobility because it's easily reversible once you reach a threshold of responsivity. Another key thing, and this is something Irene Tobler introduced in the sleep literature that hints at functionality or the need for sleep is that if you lose it, you need more of it later. It's a sleep rebound. So if I were to keep you awake tonight, then you might express or exhibit more of this state of relative immobility with an increased response threshold during the following day or night. You might have an earlier sleep onset, a longer sleep or deeper sleep. You see all of that in every insect that's been tested for sleep. In honeybees, you see them drooping in the direction of gravity. You see this relative Im immobility. You might see slight twitches in the antennae or maybe in the tarsi, the feet of the honeybee. Um, the key, a proxy for sleep that works really well, I found in 100% of the cases that I've studied, is that if they're in this uh, relatively immobile state and they're ventilating, differently, meaning you see their body potentially breathing differently. Their abdomens pump. So they go, uh, when they're awake, you'll see uh, many insects, um, third section of the body, an abdomen going ba, 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 pumping in a 
forward, backward direction. But when they're in this immobile state, they engage in what's called discontinuous ventilation. It's not continuous anymore. They go, and then a long pause, sometimes minutes and minutes long. And Wait, is, if, it, is it a breathing? Are they breathing by doing yeah, that? Or what are they doing? That's right. So they have this explosive release of carbon dioxide and intake of oxygen during one phase of this uh, discontinuous ventilation. Otherwise, the way they breathe is that they open these holes called spiracles on the sides of their body. This is what all insects do. And so they'll close all of those up for minutes sometimes, at least 10 seconds, but sometimes many minutes. And then it'll flutter and then open wide, allowing the gas exchange. Well, it's during like snoring in a way. Yeah, that's right. It's sort of this noiseless snore, although I've never put a very sensitive microphone. To <laughs> but this... I bet you because of the built up pressure, you're like, or something yeah, in... like that if you did, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting point. And that seems to, when you can measure that, when you can see it, and you can't see it in all insects, I've looked for it in ants, for example, they, they are engaging in uh, this gas exchange, this unusual gas exchange method, but whether or not that correlates with the, the true measures of sleep is at this point unknown. And so it's not as easy to flippantly say, ah, immobile, asleep. And you want to beware of the dangers of, of ascribing that term because it's a loaded one, because sleep is a complex behavior that seems to be associated with profoundly important functional aspects to call anything that seems to be still asleep, maybe doing an injustice to that, that behavior, that category of behavior that, that we know fairly well for ourselves so how long how long are bugs in this state do they sleep like you know seven eight hours like people or yeah that's right variation yeah when you consolidate all their sleep bouts i found that the the older foragers sleep just about the same amount of time as the average human and the way i tested this the sleep and the sleep rebound was well i had to think of a way so you've got these this colony of tens of thousands or at least a few thousand stinging insects, potentially stinging insects. You're not going to shake a nest, right? They'll leave that nest. They'll abscond from that nest and you won't get them back or you'll be covered with stingers. So what I needed to do was to look at a subset of individuals in the colony and to perturb them, disturb them for at least a night and see what kind of repercussions might exist. Would they fall back asleep? Would they show that sleep rebound? And would there be other effects that hint at functionality of sleep? And so the background of, of one of my favorite studies involved looking at communication. And we know that humans, amazing communicators, and we have these abstract ways of communicating co complex concepts. And we know from at least a few studies, just a scant few, that our communication suffers, not only the signaling, like us talking, but the receiving, us hearing and interpreting and acting on those signals, those messages, suffers with lack of sleep. These are especially apparent in some military-based operation studies. And so if our communication suffers with lack of sleep, could an insect's communication suffer? There are other ways that insects suffer with lack of sleep, but I was especially keen on looking at honeybees because they engage in a marvelous attribute of dancing to communicate information, key information for their survival. So if you're a forager honeybee and you've flown out as many as six miles away to some blooms, to some, uh, to a food source, or to a new home site in a tree, and you want to come back and communicate that to your fellow honeybees, Richard, what are a what's one way you could imagine an animal communicating to others a distant site to advertise? It depends on their vision, but yeah. uh, you know, it could be a motion of the body, or you know, I mean, they could call out with an audible signal. Uh, you know, maybe pheromones, I'm not sure. 
or they could use even landmarks and somehow tag them so that other members of their constituency would, would see the markings. Perfect. And everything you've mentioned exists in other species of insects. You can mark chemically with a trail pheromone all the way to the site and and expect your siblings or your nestmates to travel along that pheromone trail to the advertised site. There's even a, a, a scout and follow method where basically you have a few of those individuals follow right behind you all the way to that site. There are a lot of different ways you can do it. And a couple of the ways you mentioned hinted at just pointing like that way, right? Or, or maybe giving some audible signal. And all of those are possibilities depending on who you are. Well, in the case of the honeybees, they've evolved to exhibit a dance and it's called the waggle dance. And if you're a cavity nest dweller in a dark hollow tree where you can't see each other, you can run along your waxen comb that comes from wax scales that workers exude from their own bodies and then chew up and form into these beautiful prismatic hexagonal cells that form the honeycomb, you can dance along this comb. Now, just running along it and, and say flapping your wings would be enough to attract attention of those bees around you because they're really sensitive to vibrations. They also make squeaking noises. So you can hear these high-pitched squeaks and the bees at least very nearby because they can't hear far field sound. They can't hear sound from more than a few millimeters away would also come closer and respond. They also give a taste of the food by regurgitating some of it. Those that taste it will know the scent and the taste of the advertised site. But it would be so inefficient in the colony for the bees to keep flying back and forth with a few bees at a time. So instead, they engage in a dance. And the dance, oddly, in this dark, hollow tree, takes the form of, well, what do you need? Distance, direction to find your advertised site. And so for direction, they take the vertical representing the sun, the location or direction of the sun, and the angle at which they dance relative to that vertical relates to the angle of flight relative to the sun that they need to fly to the food source. So say, for example, you're a worker that's found a really valuable food source and you want to advertise that. You would dance at a 30 degree angle to the right of the vertical And workers that follow enough of your waggle circuits would then fly out at 30 degrees to the right of the sun to find that food source. But they could undershoot or overshoot. So you need the distance component as well. And that's built into the duration or the time invested in each waggling before they turn around and then waggling before they turn around. Say it's one second, that might be a kilometer away. So... This is, the, this is one of many forms of communication in honeybees. And I wanted to see if sleep re- could affect that in any way. And more specifically, if sleep restriction or deprivation could negatively affect that. Do they become sloppier dancers if they've lost sleep? And going into this risky study, I had no idea if methods would work, or if they would even bother dancing after being disturbed. So thinking back to how to disturb a subset of bees in a colony, I ended up trying a a few different things and finally came upon the idea of magnets. If I could put some little magnetic or ferrous metal on the backs of some bees and not other bees, and then move magnets on the other side of the glass while they're on their comb across the hive and see if that wiggled them enough, at least those that had the ferrous metal, then maybe I could do that enough during one night to sleep restrict that subset of bees. So I put, I punched in tiny circles, a thousandth of an inch thick shim stock of steel, cold rolled steel for those to be sleep restricted. And then I punched the same thickness and everything for copper, non-ferrous metal, 
and glued that to the backs of uh, the control bees that weren't going to be wiggled or perturbed. And that night, I, I wiggled some of the bees. And the next day, to make a long story short, I wanted to see if they would sleep more after being wiggled and would their behavior in terms of waggle dancing suffer? Would it change? And both happened. So the sleep restriction resulted in a sleep rebound in a fashion. They exhibited what might be considered deeper sleep in one consolidated period during one portion of the day more when they'd been perturbed. But the key part of the study was there some kind of functional lapse with sleep restriction. And sure enough, the waggle dancers that had been wiggled, had, had been sleep restricted, didn't show a difference in the distance component that I could measure, but in the direction component, the average, the mean of the waggle was really variable. So it was less precise. The dance was sloppier in the direction sense. And so I followed up that study later using this, I called it the insominator, or I adopted the term. And so the insominator of magnets wiggling these bees not only resulted in these sleep-restricted bees with sloppier dances, but the followers of those dances were affected as well. I found that if you had at least imprecise dances, that the, the followers of those dances would leave. They'd go to another dancer. They wouldn't leave the colony. So that reduced not only the flight out of the colony and uh, visitation to artificial feeders of sugar water that we train them to, but it would also reduce the, of course, the intake of food. And if you're a honeybee colony competing against other honeybee colonies and you have lower rates of food intake, then natural selection is going to probably weed you out. So it could be a life or death situation, although a lot more needs to be tested to look at functionality with respect to communication, the signaling and receiving that we studied at honeybees. Good question here. Um... I was just watching actually a video called The Vanishing of the Bees. Ah. Um, it was from a bunch of years ago, not too long ago. But um, I also interviewed someone someone recently, I don't know, maybe six months ago, and they said that actually because of because uh, of breeding, there's actually more bees than before, and the, the loss has been made up. I know this is kind of a, a left-field question, but when I was watching this video, I thought, why don't, why don't they tag the bees in the hive and see where they go? So when they have you know a colony collapse and they just leave, where are they going? Is that That's, possible? Yes, it is under very controlled, highly controlled conditions. That's a great question because that is the mystery of this uh, disturbing disorder, colony collapse disorder, in which you're right, the workers just vanish. You might have what looks on the surface to be a healthy colony with brood, etc., but the workers have gone. So it collapses. And there are strong ideas as to why this is happening, but where they're going, uh, nobody to my knowledge knows. How would you test that? How would you mark the bees to find out where they're going? Well, battery-operated units that you could attach to a bee are just not sufficiently small enough. And to retrieve that little backpack might be difficult, especially if they're disappearing. But there, there have been really interesting um, advances that involve harmonic radar and attaching an antenna to a bee. So in, uh, for example, Menzel's lab in Berlin, years ago, they wanted to look at this waggle dance of the honeybee and really confirm that what they're doing helps with respect to bees flight to a food source by this abstract, what some have called the dance language. And so what they did was they, they watched as bees flying in from a food source were about to head out and they grabbed those bees and they would glue a, a tall, relative to the length of the body of the bee, a really long antenna on the back. So it couldn't enter the nest or any hive with that long antenna, but it could still fly with that antenna. Now, the weight of a battery 
was not there, and that's why they were able to conduct the study. Instead, they could send out radio signals from a tower that would hit that antenna and come back. And so they could record the location at any given time of that of the flight path that be. And they found very specifically what the flight paths were and how the waggle dance correlates with or communicates um, or plays out with respect to the flight paths of these bees. Now, what do you need for harmonic radar to happen? Well, you need a very large, open, unobstructed area, basically a flat, open area. And that's, that's a tall order, especially if you wanted to measure colony collapse disorder. One, you'd have to, if you're going to use this method, you'd have to catch the bees at just the right time. And you'd have to have the harmonic radar, not only antennae, but a station set up in a flat area that could at least catch them within a certain distance. So that's a tall order if you're going to apply that method. Otherwise, bees flying off can fly uh, several miles away and sometimes through thick forest. If you've ever tried to chase down a swarm of bees, as I have through my hometown of La Crosse, Wisconsin, it's a challenge. So you see a colony of bees lift up and in a, a marvelous swirl of thousands suddenly fly off in one direction. And you can run, you can run after them as, as Carl von Frisch, who first described the dance language in Honeybee's best, greatest student tried to do in Berlin. He chased down, Martin Lindauer would chase down in wartime, World War II time Berlin in blown up, devastated cityscape areas the bees to find out where they were going. And with limited success, you can find out the problem with colony collapse disorder is it's not that swirling swarm. So you don't have a good visual indicator. It just creeps well, up what, on you. Has anyone observed it though? Has anyone observed a colony leaving the hive? And does it look any different from their normal daily foraging, you know, jaunt? Uh, I think because it creeps up on you and it's not this eye popping swarming event. Uh, and it might look similar, like a few bees petering out or a number of bees flying out of the nest, which can happen, in, which is happening right now in my backyard on a good sunny day, that you wouldn't detect a difference. Well, what if you set up uh, like a toll or something, you know, some kind of sensor on the inlet of the hive that counts a bee going in or out, and it alerts you if there's, you know, more going out than are coming in and not enough are coming in over, you know, in a certain period of time. I mean, what if you did that in general? Looked at yeah. the dynamics and compared it. And, and people do that quite often. They'll have either radio frequency identifier tags, RFID tags on the bees with an RFID reader. So you can detect how many bees are coming and going and which bees are coming and going. Or you can have barcode readers. There are a lot of different ways that you can do that. The problem is the rates change really dramatically within any given day, let alone across days. It can be quite predictable if they haven't gotten food and all of a sudden it's a blue sky, sun out, that they'll fly out on mass when it's warm enough to detect the difference between that and an unexpected colony collapse disorder you probably require a decent sample size across a number of hives and serendipitously capture that event. And then maybe after the fact, see if the rates have changed. I think, Richard, you're on to a tractable study, at least in retrospect. Namely, you measure it, you see that half of your colonies have fallen to colony collapse disorder, look at the rates of uh, coming and going and see if it has changed dramatically. And I think you might be hinting at a possible, if not preemptive strike, at least a warning um, in the future, if you can identify that uh, entry exit rate, if it's significantly different for colony collapse disorder. It's an interesting how idea. The, 
Yeah, how far do bees go when they forage? Like, what's the maximum limits? And is it a, a true radius? Or do they tend to go in certain directions and it looks like a bunch of, I don't know, mile or two mile long spikes. They travel and come back. Yeah, that is really easy to decode. If you were to come and visit and look at my observation hive of honeybees, you, you could very quickly detect, aha, there are several waggle dancing honeybees. And look, they're waggling at that angle relative to the vertical, and they're, ang- they're dancing for, here it goes, two seconds, and then turning around, and then another two seconds, and then they're turning around. You could go out, walk in the direction relative to the sun at the prescribed distance that you've decoded and find the site where they're collecting food or where they're presumably advertising a place to swarm and start a new colony. And they can go in very specific directions repeatedly, day after day after day. And in fact, in an anticipatory way, like for example, if you, uh, Richard, if you had sugar water and you, if you left it out for bees and they discovered it and they kept coming to it, if you kept refilling that and going farther and farther and farther away, you could go a mile away. You could go, well, (laughs) you'd have to find a very special location, maybe in a desert where they don't have enough natural food sources that would be preferable anyway to distract them. But say if you found that site, you're on the dark side of the moon (laughs) and they're able to breathe or in a sufficiently large desert when blooms aren't available, you could advertise a handful of miles away. Bees have been known to fly six miles for food and you could go in that direction, that distance, and find the site. Yeah, so I mean, when, when uh, you know, I don't know why I'm on to CCD, I guess because of the video, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you drew a, a, a six-mile radius around a hive and you saw that the hive all of a sudden was gone, I mean, had people fanned out to look to see where could these bees have possibly gone? You know, how far did they go? And are they all dead in a pile somewhere? Like, you know, where could they have gone? Yeah, and to my knowledge, I don't know of anyone who's found one big lump of worker bees somewhere. So it may be that they disperse and uh, die in 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 a in a widely dispersed area, in which case they'd never be detected, and that would likely not be associated specifically with a particular hive's colony collapse disorder. So the key is to really look at what's causing it so the mechanisms underlying the colony collapse disorder to try to prevent it to find some remedy for it yeah it's a yeah, tricky I'm surprised one. i'm surprised no one set up a bunch of cameras to observe a hide you know longitudinally over i don't know a couple of weeks and see without you know counting well maybe someone has but like what, what's been noticed if someone's done that is there oh. patterns yeah i've i've done that a lot a number of researchers have done that a lot uh i and you'll see patterns that are weather dependent. Uh, so for example, a honeybee can see light that we can't see. Not only can they see ultraviolet light, which we cannot perceive or detect, but they can, they can see polarized light. And so with a cloud covered sky, if it's entirely cloud covered, they won't get the polarized light that can tell them the directionality or to pinpoint the location of the sun, but if there's even a little patch of blue sky, they'll be able to do so. So with you've got that as uh, in your favor, like you can, you can predict when the bees will be flying with respect to sunlight, blue skies, lack of cloud cover, lack of rain, and the rest, as well as temperature being an important factor, and availability of food sources, say blooms are available this time of day in the morning or this time in the afternoon, then the bees will burst forth in activity in anticipation of those blooms. The problem is it can be so, in many ways, chaotic that uh, looking for those changes over longer periods of time with so many ecological variables uh, confronting the bees that you might not have the fine-tuned predictable differences necessary to see. I'm not saying it's impossible. It may be possible, but you'd have to have some pretty large differences for colony collapse disorder to be detected on that scale. I may be proven wrong in the in the future, 
But my guess is watching a lot of bees, you need a really radical difference in terms of hive exiting. Well, last question, what if the bees are out foraging, all of a sudden the weather changes and it gets super cloudy and starts raining? Are they yeah. stuck or how do they get home? I've, I've trained bees under conditions in which there were no wild bees out in the forest and very little other food available to them. So they were desperate for the sugar water that I supplied. So I was well over a, a lake surface with white caps. It, it took all my energy to row a boat out to this platform. And still, even though I was in a scarf and a sweater and it was really cold, bees would still fly out a great distance over water in the cold with high winds. So uh, they'll do it. They're hardy, but under uh, better conditions, when it starts to rain significantly or gets colder, they'll shut down, which means they could be caught out in the cold or out in the rain and then ultimately return to the nests if they're able to. Okay. Well, very good, Baron. I know we we wandered more into bees, but I guess they're they're super interesting to me. Oh, they're endlessly um, fascinating. Carl von Frisch <laughs> called them a magic well because the more you'd discover, the more there was to discover. Well, very cool. We're you know, unfortunately, we're out of time. But what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? I think going to my University of Wisconsin Lacrosse website or going to my home site pupating.org p u p a t ing.org is one way you can find me, contact me, and learn about some of the things we didn't get, didn't have time to talk about, like cultural entomology, how insects have affected humans across our history and across the world, as well as interests relating to visualizing science and the intrigue of sleep. Very good, Barrett. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.